You're listening to A Step Forward, episode 56. Today we're getting into easy sports adaptations with Kirsten French. Welcome to A Step Forward, a podcast for educators who want to help their students lead their most independent and successful lives. I'm Cassie Maloney. As an orientation and mobility specialist, I believe that you don't need to be perfect in order to be effective. Join me this week and every week for inspirational and informational ideas to help you make a significant impact in your students' lives. As we explore the notion that in order to make progress, all you need to do is take a step forward. Happy week after Thanksgiving for those of you guys in the United States. I hope you had a great break. Our little family all got together as what I now call a four pack, the four of us. And we went out to dinner at this patio that we loved. And it's been a tradition for us to either go out to dinner, the four of us, or meet up with some friends for Thanksgiving and do Thanksgiving with their whole huge family. The going out to dinner this year was absolutely perfect. Although I do miss the cranberry sauce, I will admit that is a okay. I can always grab that at the grocery store at another time. I just never think about it. Let me introduce you to Kirsten French, who is the programs manager, sports adaptations in Camp Spark, co camp director of Camp Spark for the Northwest Association for Blind Athletes. She earned her bachelor's degree from Grove City College in special education and elementary education and her master's degree from Slippery Rock University of Pennsylvania in adapted physical activity. Kirsten is a certified disability sports specialist with an undergraduate degree in special education and has also done graduate work in deaf education. She's been working in the field of physical activity and education for people with a variety of impairments, including visual impairments, for 14 years. Well, all that is great and dandy. We love learning about person before we really dive into the conversation. Here's a big thing to take away from our conversation that I had with Kirsten. Oftentimes, we get stuck in this loop where it feels like things are really hard and we say things like, I'm stuck. Or I don't know how to help this teacher. And you can label whatever kind of teacher. And we forget that the ripple effect of doing small adaptations is so huge. That ripple effect from tiny things, tiny, easy, easy ways that we can adapt our students' environments, the materials they come in contact with, really can change their life. So as you listen today, See if you can take some notes on your phone and maybe even add some ideas to do to your calendar. Really make this actionable because it's a great conversation. It's very interview style, but it's very, very down to earth. Kristen is so wonderful. And I love all the things that Northwest Association for Blind Athletes is doing for people with visual impairments and how they've adapted what their programs look like for COVID. I can't imagine having to take that on. Enough of me chatting here. Let's go to the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Kirsten. It is so nice to have you here. I'm so excited for our community to get to know you. So I'm so excited to be here. Before we even really dive in, will you tell our community a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are right now? 
Yes. So I am Kirsten French, and I am the programs manager of Camp Spark and Sports Adaptations at the Northwest Association for Blind Athletes, and I've been there since 2016. But before that, I have done my undergrad in elementary and special education and taught life skills for a few years, and then did my master's in adapted physical activity, which is where I got particularly passionate about sports for people who are blind or visually impaired, and that brought me out to the Pacific Northwest. That is so cool. So what got you interested in just sports for people with visual impairments just in general? Was there like a specific moment in your life that was eye-opening for you? Yes. So when I was doing my master's in adapted physical activity, one of my professors who taught a class called disability sport had been a coach for the 96 Paralympic men's team. And she was particularly passionate about blind sports. And so we did a lot with blind sports in our organization. And I had played on our college goalball team and had the opportunity to get involved in that sport and really saw the impact that sport can have and how it can be used as a catalyst and as a teaching mechanism for teaching things even more so than just sports, physical activity, of being used as a catalyst for greater independence and quality of life and how in the athletes that we worked with, how much it really impacted them. And that's what brought me to the Pacific Northwest and really one made me, after I graduate, want to look for not just working with people with any impairment in sports and physical activity, but specifically individuals who are blind and visually impaired. Wow. So you're saying your college in and of itself had a goalball team too? Yes. Yes. So we had one of a friend of mine, he's now on the men's US team. And so to give him an opportunity to practice and because our coach wanted to use this as an opportunity to have students with visual impairments at the college, as well as other students who didn't have a visual impairment like myself, the opportunity to learn about the sport and to become advocates for the sport and for sports and opportunities for individuals with visual impairments, to use that as a teaching mechanism. They started a goalball team and we were able to travel out to Portland for a tournament. My goodness. Are you now stationed in Portland? Is yes. that where they Yeah, our office is officially in Vancouver, Washington. Wow. How do you like living in the Pacific Northwest? I really enjoy it. We have an opportunity to travel throughout the four states that we serve in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana. And it's just a great opportunity to be able to be outdoors, which I love, and to be doing all the things that I love doing recreationally, but doing this for my job. And I just think this is such a beautiful area and it is such a great opportunity to just combine personal life and work life. So the Northwest Association, you guys aren't just like for Oregon or for Washington, but you're for all four states. How does that work within the organization? Yes. So we do six different programs of our Camp Spark sports adaptations, sports outreach, increasing visibility, scholarships, and sports teams. And through those programs, we reach athletes of different ages and different abilities. So we, all the athletes that we work with, whether it can be someone who is just learning how to swim for the first time as a baby who's just learning how to swim, 
to someone who is older and wants to get active after they've lost their vision, to people who are hoping to train for the Paralympics or actively training for the Paralympics, or people who have been to the Paralympics, have medaled, have world records, and they're staying active after kind of rejoining regular life post the Paralympics. And so through the six programs, we work with athletes at all different levels and mechanisms through some of our our programs include some Paralympic experiences for youth and school-aged youth that we travel around through the four states to go to schools to give youth the opportunity to try, try a sport that they've never tried before. For a lot of them, we will bring tandem bikes and it's the first time they've ridden a bike or maybe we're doing soccer and they have had a peer that said, well, you're not able to see, so you can't do soccer. And we show them, yes, you can. And here's the equipment that is you're able to use, but soccer looks the exact same and here and an opportunity to learn those skills. And our camp programs give the opportunity to come and have a week of camp where and or weekends. Some of our programs are weekends for that and to build community with other youth with visual impairments. Some of them are meeting someone with the same visual impairment as them, and they've never met someone else with their similar visual impairment, or even maybe have never met someone else with a visual impairment and can build that community as well as have the opportunity to learn sports and physical activity in an intensive environment that is well-supported and is at their level. And we also do ongoing programming in a couple of specific areas, including Greater Portland Vancouver area, Southern Willamette Valley, Puget Sound, and Boise. And that's weekly ongoing programming. And the sports vary throughout the year, just as whatever season that is specifically. And those areas are continually growing so that we can continue offering that ongoing programming in all areas as we grow. Wow. So I have so many questions about how running a program like that works, especially as being the head person of the programming for them. But you mentioned something that I don't want to skip over. You mentioned that there's a lot of community involved Mm -hmm. and also helping to change the perception of the people in the community, right? Mm -hmm. So often we do see times where, you know, well-meaning, but just not knowing child will say, oh, well, or even adult, you don't have vision, so you can't play soccer. And you're like, what? To me, that doesn't compute. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. That just, no, no, that doesn't work. It's not how life works, friend. <laughs> and then for you to be able to come in and do it, not only in just like a center-based program, but to be able to go into the community and go into multiple places. As the person who's the program director, how do you manage all of that? So I think one of the things that I think is important to mention of that we do is our sports adaptations program. And that is one of the programs I work specifically with. And that enables us to be able to extend our reach from instead of people always having the opportunity to come to a center-based program or a centrally located program, because a lot of the individuals that we work with live in areas that are more rural and access to equipment technology information, professional development is more limited. And our sports adaptations program enables us to extend that reach by offering adaptive equipment lending for all of those four states for youth, schools, parents, adults, coaches to have access to the equipment at no cost in a similar way as a typical library where they will just send us a request form of what equipment they would like to borrow. And then we mail that equipment to them and they have it for 
two months and can use it and now have, that's one barrier of having access to that equipment. That barrier is now taken away. And that child that frequently just having that equipment now opens up doors that were previously very much closed beforehand and now really breaks down that barrier. And we also do a lot with offering professional development opportunities and working in consultations with teachers and schools and parents on what are some ways that they can make their classroom and teaching more accessible to the students with visual impairments. And frequently, the changes that we talk about are very simple and are very straightforward and don't change how the classroom is run in general, don't change how their peers are interacting with the classroom. They're just making it more accessible, the teaching more accessible. And a lot of times when we work with teachers and families and talk through those different adaptations, it's a light bulb moment for them of things that they haven't thought of before. But now it sparks a thought of, I could also do this and I could also do this. And, and now I realize how things aren't. It isn't this huge problem that you have to solve and you have to change everything for, that they're little things that make a huge impact. And then we also offer some teaching videos to, and our teaching video library is ever growing that talks about, right now we have ones that are on locomotor skills, object control skills and fitness skills specifically, and talk about how to teach a specific skill to a child with a visual impairment and really break it down and break down exactly how you can teach it from someone never knowing how to maybe skip. And now what are the steps? What are the cues? How can you break it down? What teaching methods can you use? And providing those resources that someone now sees, okay, it is possible and I can even use it in my classroom. I was talking to one teacher who has a number of students with visual impairments and she was talking about how even those teaching methods were useful for all of her kindergartners who were learning how to skip and seeing how to break it down was now accessible to everyone, including the student with a visual impairment. I was looking at your video resource library and it is really extensive, but the really cool thing about it is that it is so professionally done but not in a way that's intimidating whatsoever. You guys in the show notes will link to their website below. And it's literally with like the second button on the website, you just scroll down just a little bit and you can click on that. And then they have it broken down into locomotor skills and object control skills, fitness skills, and then other resources. It's really, really well done. So what you guys have basically done is taken the traditional center-based model mm-hmm. and look, we're going to expand this. We're going to increase our impact. And you've mobilized yourselves, but then you've created impact by offering professional development as well, which then just amplifies the trickle-down effect of everything that you guys are doing. Yes. Like, can you tell me about a student that you've worked with and a problem that they've had and how you guys have overcome that problem. So we can get a good example of exactly what your organization does. Yes, yes. So one of of my favorite stories that I always talk about with a student is, I was talking to her mother at a conference and her mother was becoming a TVI, but her daughter had a visual impairment and was really active and enjoyed being active, but was experiencing a lot of pushback from her peers and from teachers. And she was the one who, she really wanted to play soccer, but her friends were saying, well, you have a visual impairment. You, you're you not able to play. And 
So instantly we had some soccer balls and lent her one. And that started off of, all right, this is one piece of equipment that you are able to use. And then we, that opened up the door of not only is this one piece of equipment that you're able to use, now let's talk about what are some other things that we can do to make the classroom more accessible. And that opened the question of how is the environment not accessible right now? That one of the things is is with her visual impairment, she had some light sensitivity. So a room that you and I might see as bright, but fine. She was seeing as overly bright and was now, that was a barrier to what her accessing the classroom. And so we talked about lowering the lights or turning off the lights so that her peers are still able to have, it's not dark, they're still able to access it, but it's now at a level that isn't distracting to her. And talking about some different ways to make the lines high contrast and putting a different color of tape where the lines on the court are going to be. What color does she see best? And she found it best when it is, if the floor is a light wood color, making sure that those lines are dark and are clear. Okay, that works well. And her peers are, are going to find that helpful as well. But And they're definitely not going to find that impeding to their involvement in the sport. And then something else that she really found helpful was using tactile diagrams and models for describing something very interesting. And I'm going to divert a little bit off from her to another student that we had talked to that he was in a classroom and had no idea how to skip. And so we spent just a few minutes, and this is actually when we were filming one of our videos, he was going to be our our skipping example. And so we talked about, do you know how to skip? And he said, no, I know that people skip, but I have no idea what skipping looks like. So we spent a few minutes talking about a tactile diagram, and it was just a couple pictures of someone skipping and the breakdown of the steps. We had printed it out, laminated it, and then drawn the outline with puffy paint, and he was able to feel the different body movements. We were able to talk through about what the body was doing, how would that look like on his body, and then he was instantly able to, with just a few verbal cues, then understand how to do skipping and was able to do it successfully, even for filming a video from having no idea how to use that. And then also using the our, our one student who was, we lent the soccer ball to, and also this student with the tactile diagram, using an artist's figurine that a lot of schools just have in their art classroom that they can mold into different body movements. And building those into different body movements, whether it's for dribbling or kicking or skipping or anything at all, and breaking those down, passing that to the student for them to feel, what does the body feel like for this movement? How is my knee bent? Where are my hips? And now that really opens up doors. And one of the classes that we had talked with, when we were showing them the tactile diagrams, they had brought up that one of their classes in eighth grade was a community-based service learning project. And they said, great. This is a great way for our students to get to know this other student. They can make the tactile diagrams. They can make tactile diagrams of a football field, of a soccer field, and they're going to really enjoy that. That's going to be a community learning project that they're really going to enjoy. And now they're also able to, as they walk through it with the student, they're building those relationships that relationships that didn't exist before. As they talk through what does a field look like, that's going to start to help building relationships and help that community to grow outside of just a classroom-based project. Yeah, that's really true. And one thing that I heard you mention, especially around 
the little boy skipping. What about all of his friends who skip? He doesn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And our students with visual impairments can be so ostracized anyway, just because they have a visual impairment. And they're probably the only one in the class or the school or the district or the whole area that has a visual impairment. So they're all alone socially anyway. And to be able to give them the gift of connecting with their friends by Mm -hmm. skipping or playing soccer or moving their body in a way that their friends also move their bodies, especially when you're talking about play-based social interaction when they're Mm -hmm. younger. And yeah, and how like important that is for that student. And just think about down the road, their job opportunities, because they were included in that social circle at seven, then at 17, what opens up for them because they had the ability to connect socially with their peers. Yes. I think that's one of the most impactful things to take away from how sports and physical activity can impact life as a whole. I initially think that, yes, it's great for youth to be involved in sports and physical activity in any level, in moving their body. It's healthy. It's good. It's a great way to build relationships. But then we think off of what are the ways that it can be a catalyst for life impacting change. When a child is involved in any play-based activity and learning, they're now learning how to interact with their peers. They are learning what those social skills look like. What are conversations? How do conversations run? And how do they start a conversation with someone else that they don't know? Now that they've learned about a sport, that's now a conversation that maybe they have struggled with some social skills due to a secondary impairment. And they now have some knowledge about that sport and something that they're really interested in, that their peers are really interested in as well. And that gives a topic to start a conversation off of and build from there. And so they learn a lot of great social skills. And then past that, they are have now are moving their bodies and are healthy in a way that we know that people need to be healthy to be independent, that we're working to break the cycle of ill health and obesity and overweightness that is frequently unnecessarily associated with visual impairments due to a lack of skills, especially at a foundational level. And as you start young learning those skills, they develop good skills for life and then are in a healthy place that now they can go and work a full day and continue and do something recreational at night because they have healthy and they have the stamina to do that. And also looking at ways that recreation can be used as social skills as adults, teaching youth how, for example, of one of the things that we have spent some time on doing is teaching youth some Zumba and yoga. Those are great ways that a lot of adults choose to build some community when they're adults. They may go to a community center to do a yoga class. They may go to a community center to do a Zumba class or anything else, but they they know that that they can go to this class and they know some of the moves, they know some of the language and they can go and they have the confidence to engage in that activity and to build that community as adults to eliminate that isolation that is unnecessarily associated with disabilities and, but can be ameliorated. Yeah, so true. So I think we touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to know from your professional perspective, Some general adaptations that teachers and educators can apply to increase the accessibility for their students or children with visual impairments. Yes, definitely. 
definitely. So I think one of the things that is really important takeaway is to think about that most of the adaptations that we're looking at that we talk about making the environment, the classroom, the teaching more accessible are very small, are very minimal, but they have a huge impact. And these are all things that that impact peers as a whole, not even just the youth with a visual impairment. So some things are increasing the modes of instruction. How are you delivering the instruction to increasing the number of verbal descriptions and cues? It's something that when I started off in this profession, I I thought that I was descriptive in what I was doing and how I was describing something that I'm doing, but I found that I really wasn't. And a lot of my teaching would be do it like this or see what I'm doing. But that isn't an accessible way of teaching. But if you describe my knees are bent, my hips are pushed back, these are things that become more accessible and they, they're descriptions that someone can replicate. But the important thing with that is there are other peers in the classroom who they see what a teacher's doing and they think they're doing it right. But because they don't have that verbal description, they don't know how to replicate it. But when they're given that verbal description of are your elbows bent at a 90 degree angle? Are they pushing out to the side for a push-up? Are they pushing out behind you for a push-up? Oh, they're pushing out behind me. Oh, okay, now I know I'm, I'm doing it right. Maybe that was an adaptation you added for a student with a visual impairment, but it made the classroom more accessible for everyone in general. And using some of the tactile learning and teaching methods that we talked about before, some of those tactile diagrams, tactile maps, whether you can make a tactile map of the classroom or the field or court or a game. And you can make those easily from string or pipe cleaners taped or glued onto a piece of cardboard. One way we do it that's incredibly easy if you're doing a game that is like golf or something else that maybe has a path that you're following, like an elementary school game, maybe they have a a little path that they're going to hop on one leg on. You can take a piece of cardboard and put push pins in it. And now you've made a tactile map, but all you've used is cardboard and push pins. So it's something that you already have, but it opens up a door that wasn't there before. And somebody has full access to that classroom and to that game and the artist's figurines. Something else that we have talked a lot about with educational teams is how pre-teaching is really helpful of having the child have an opportunity to learn some of the skills beforehand and maybe have access to the classroom beforehand to learn what is a volleyball net. They can go in, feel what the net feels like, how high is it, where are they going to be standing to serve, et cetera. And now that they've even had five, 10 minutes of opportunity to access that classroom and learn that, they now are starting at a level that is similar to the peers. A lot of educational teams will work with, they will use that as an opportunity for O&M or a TVI will use some pre-teaching opportunity to practice some Braille or practice some language development on developing different vocabulary words that they're going to use in a classroom and it's benefiting two classrooms and the educational team with the PE teachers and O&M and TVI will all work together on how can all of that information benefit each other for one similar goal and kind of doubling up on instruction with the same amount of time. And they're not increasing the amount of work that they're all doing. They're just making it really effective and teams have found that really helpful. And as well as using a peer tutor, especially a peer tutor who is 
someone who has just learned that skill. They've just developed it and they're confident, but now they need to teach it to someone else. So they, they're at a level that's just one step above their peer. And that's a great way to see how much that peer understands that skill because they now need to teach it to someone else. But that peer is learning that skill better because now they have to communicate it. And using small-sided games is another thing that we have talked a lot about is now, it's, let's say instead of playing an 11-a-side soccer game where you have 22 people on the field, even with, let's say, only one of those students has a visual impairment, there are also going to be a number of other students on that field who maybe have lower skills or don't really want to play the game. So they're going to opt to stick to the side. And there's going to be a small group of kids who are playing really hard and they're taking over the game. And it works for a classroom. But now if you break that soccer game down into a three-on-three, all the kids have to participate. There's less information that the student with a visual impairment now has to either worry about visually or auditorily, and they have less to focus on, but they also have more time to be involved. And all the other peers have more time to be involved. And especially considering the environment when we talked about lighting or accessibility of movement. Is the movement sensible in a classroom or are there obstacles in the way? What obstacles can be eliminated? Can you minimize obstacles? Can you maintain a flow of traffic? Consistent equipment location so a student only has to learn where equipment is regularly kept as opposed to it changing all the time. And that makes it easy for flow of traffic for other students. And all these changes are small, but they make a massive impact for the youth and for, and even for the peers as well. And the students with a visual impairment are now participating in school and life in their community at a level that their peers are. One thing I love about everything that you just said was that it's all really small. It sounds small. I guess it's easy to implement Mm -hmm. because the degree in which it's going to create an impact is not small. I would love to know what you guys are doing right now with COVID and what that looks like for you all teaching remotely. Yes. Yeah. So COVID's obviously in so many areas of life, it's presented a unique opportunity. And I think when we get to the, we're going to see a lot of good teaching methods come out of this. And one of the things that we were able to do was really focus on our adaptive video resource library that when we start, we had to move to a virtual learning environment, we were able to really focus on finishing those videos and getting those out to schools and getting those out to families. And now we've been able to, especially as we start this new school year, reference that and send those out to families and send those out to individuals and and utilize that. Something else that we have continued is we've been lending our equipment and continued that. And so it's just, even if they're home, we have been able to give them access to equipment. And we've also have started this year a virtual PE class that happens once a week. We have one for our primary age students from pre-K to elementary school and one for our secondary students, including middle school and high school. Our middle school and high school typically focuses on lifetime sports and the individual PE standards and units and how they can be exercising at home. And our primary PE typically focuses on some of the developmental skills that they're focusing on in a pre-K and elementary level. And how can they make equipment at home? And what can they do to use what they have at home? In December, we will be doing dribbling. So we were talking about how can you make a ball at home? 
a really cool way to make a ball at home, especially if you're dribbling for soccer. You know that the ball doesn't need to bounce. It should be pretty round, but if it's a little squishy or flat, that's okay. So we talked about how you can make a ball out of some plastic shopping bags and you can bundle those up. Maybe you cover it in a white shopping bag so that's a high contrast to the floor if your floor is a little darker. And now to make it audible, you can put some keys inside, you can put some coins inside, or to make a rattle on the inside, you can take either some plastic container that you have at home, whether that's a small Tupperware container, a yogurt container, a an Easter egg, a plastic Easter egg you have, or maybe you have an old pill container or medicine container that's empty, you're not using it, but you can fill it with some rocks or some coins or some nuts and bolts, anything that you have at home that's good to use and fill that with something that's going to rattle, stick that on the inside of the ball, put the shopping bags around it and tie it up. And now you have a ball that as you kick it, it makes noise and you can use that for dribbling. You can use it for practicing throwing. And so we've been doing some, each month has a different skill. And in that skill, we break down the skill and we spend a month breaking it down, giving specific instruction, giving specific feedback to the youth who are attending. And then we play some different games that they can play as a group and continuing that community building. And all of these games are games that they could then continue to play at home or practice at home. Each month we do an instructional video that we write up and teach on on that lesson for the month and break it down of how you can teach it at home if someone wants to do some pre-teaching beforehand or they want to do that activity that we did but can't remember how we broke it down, they can access the video and do that with their family, with their peers, however they would like, as well as sending out that lesson plan. The interesting thing is that with these virtual environments, it has allowed us to extend our impact that we've had people join across the country, people who aren't able to attend in-person programs because they don't live in the area, but now they can attend virtually and they can meet some other people and stay active. That's amazing. It sounds like you guys have not slowed down. No. (laughs) But you also mentioned some other really cool things that families can do at home without having to go out and buy any materials, sports equipment, especially right now is astronomically priced. It's so Mm -hmm. hard to get hold of. It's just, it's like a black market out there. (laughs) You don't want to buy anything to keep you healthy. So I want to be mindful of your time, Kirsten, and thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. It has been so enlightening and wonderful to hear from you and to hear about your organization. At the end of every interview, we ask our guests to answer one question. And that is in the spirit of, and this has been like the whole thing, the whole way through. (laughs) So you might have to come up with something different, but in the spirit of, you know, we don't have to do everything all at once. We can take one small step forward and that be progress. Can you tell us something that our community can do today to just take a step forward? Yes. So I think the one thing I didn't mention before is asking the person that you're working with of what would make the environment more accessible, that asking for that feedback so that they can provide their feedback on the lights are too bright, it's too dim, I'm actually not able to see where you're standing, et cetera. And just asking that one question and getting that buy-in, one gets information that maybe you don't have from your perspective, but it also gets that buy-in from the student on, they can now advocate for themselves and they can tell you what they need and then you can take the steps that we've kind of already talked about beforehand, but 
you're taking the steps that are best and are giving some advocacy opportunity to that individual. What a phenomenal way to end this. Thank you so much. All right, my friends, there's a link in the show notes. I want you to go take a look at the Northwest Association for Blind Athletes, see everything that they do, take a look at their video library, pass it on to some APE teachers that you know, or teachers of visually impaired or O&M specialists who are working with students right now, because getting some movement in, especially when we are remote, is so important. Thank you so much, Kirsten, for coming on. Excellent. Thank you for having me. You know that feeling when you've been rushing around all day, your kids need food, your students need to be scheduled, it's five minutes before your next lesson, and you have no plans. Teaching during a pandemic has had many challenges. Wouldn't you agree? One of which being it takes so much longer to plan for a remote O&M lesson than it did to plan for a face-to-face lesson. But that's not a problem anymore because my friend, we have got you covered. Your Allied Independence community stepped up and we've bundled together eight remote O&M lesson plans that can be taught virtually or distance, all created by your community and customizable to your individual students' unique needs in five minutes or less. You want them? I know you do. All you have to do is go to alliedindependenceonline.com forward slash remote, R-E-M-O-T-E, and grab your copy, eight free remote O&M lesson plans. So you can start spending your time doing what you do best. And that, my friend, is teaching. Mm -hmm.